Hello, and welcome back to Unfamiliar Tales, a podcast about animals telling animal stories. We are your hosts. I am Pratima, and with me is Haley. Hi, Haley. Hello. We are back today with part four of the life and opinions of the Tomcat Murr. This is part four, which is in book two of the life and opinions of the Tomcat Murr. As we talk about in episode two, the book as a whole is a fragment. So we don't actually get the, we don't actually get the ending of the story. So book two is the extent of what is published and what we know E.T.A. Hoffman to have written. So that's what we're going to be talking about today as we finish out this very remarkable book. Haley, would you like to uh, just catch us up to where we're at um, so far in the story? So towards the end of part three, Murr was at the funeral of his good friend Musius, who had been by his side through a number of exploits, who had sung with him on the roof, who had told him about the cat from the Order of the Burnt Bacon, who is coming for Murr's lady love kitty. They had Musius had- was also the one who introduced Murr to the cat fraternity, of course, and yes. he was one of the verses of the Eke Kwam song. Musius was among the people that sang there, so Musius is always been a good friend uh, to Murr. Yes, and he died rather unexpectedly, and his death hit Murr very hard, and so we had spent a lot of a good section of part three at Musius's funeral, hearing the funeral oration from Hinsman, the sermon from Hinsman, and just following Murr as he celebrates the life of his good friend. And a lot went down <laughs> at that funeral beyond Hinsman giving this funeral. <laughs> as I've said before, the funeral oration, I think is one of the funniest, I think it was the funniest moment in the entire book. Just the combination of the, just the, <laughs> the cat that's giving the funeral oration who stops and licks his paws in the middle (laughs) but then also the big reveal so we mur is in the throes of grief ostensibly about his dear friend passing away but the we go straight from that to the wake yes (laughs) and where a saucy little female catches his eye and then he starts to make designs onto her at which point kitty interrupts him and tells him that the the saucy young feline, the beautiful young cat that he is interested in is actually his own daughter, Mina. I thought for a second you were just about to say a saucy young female. And I was like, no, <laughs> Haley, we don't say that on this podcast. We don't say female. Saucy feline. feline, yes. Feline, a saucy young feline named Mina, daughter of Mur. Which is also, isn't that also Mur's mother's name? Yes. I thought yes. that was, I wonder if he had, it seemed like he wasn't aware of her birth. So yeah, maybe Kitty named her that. We don't hear yeah. if Kitty names her that in honor of Murr or if it's maybe there's only so many cat names. <laughs> Murr has experienced an extremely wide range of emotions towards the end of part three, feeling the sadness of his friend's unexpected passing, the the judginess that came for him during Hinsman's <laughs> speech. <laughs> Since Mer, of course, has had many opinions. The high of meeting Mina and thinking that this was potentially new love. The shock of learning that Mina was his daughter. And then the dastardliness of looking at Mina and her mother and being like, I would go for I would go for the daughter in the end. You know what? Honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Mer is less concerned with the fact that he has this like 
brood of at least one but potentially a brood of children that he's unaware of out there than the fact that he like can't pursue Mina anymore like the the fact that he can't pursue Mina is hitting him harder than oh I didn't know that I had definitely all these children out there Um, which is also why he doesn't yeah which is also why even when he gets the news he's like standing there like comparing Mina and Kitty (laughs) Yes, it's the important part here is that (laughs) this beautiful young feline I cannot be with anymore. So yes, he's had a huge, he's had a a roller, he's he's had a roller coaster of emotions recently. And as, as you do, when you experience many high highs and many low lows in a condensed period of time, he falls into this kind of state of melancholy where he feels a lot of anxiety. And then he starts to make sense of his emotions through poetry which does him some good. He comes out of this state of melancholy. He has decided that he's decided that he's not going to pursue Mina and he puts some kind of strict boundaries in place where he's not going to see her so that he will not be tempted. Um, And he spends (laughs) deleted Facebook. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He blocked her on Instagram. Yes. (laughs) He picked up some books and he just, he worked on himself for a little bit. He reconnected with master Abraham. They would sit together. One of my favorite things about this poetry section is is first that he he gives us one of the poems but then he notes that you know he wrote many poems but he would share them with us but he's planning on having them published elsewhere yes. <laughs> mar understands the hustle of, yes. of publishing i like he understands it better than i do i don't know how to spin things off he's into, paywalling like, pieces <laughs> Yeah. He knows how to portion out the content. I can subscribe. And then <laughs> <speak>. <laughs> and my other favorite thing is that this is, we're not going to get to the Chrysler sections yet, but one of the things that the little parallels that keep happening between the two sections, Murr has this po- all this poetry um, and we get some poetry in somebody else's voice in the Chrysler sections as well. But Murr kind of, Mur talks about the balance between verse and poetry. And he says, never resort to verse when prose will do. So there's this little light shade thrown at (laughs) himself slash, you know, the Chrysler section for a gratuitous use of poetry. I have, this is a complaint that I have with Lord of the Rings book too. I've never actually finished that series because it's just like, talk about gratuitous use of poetry. Gotta skip the songs. Can you actually do that? Do you I have. Get- That's what really? I did. Okay. I skipped. Why did nobody tell me this life hack? <laughs> I would just go and I would open. I don't even know <laughs> if I have my book here, but like the poetry is always formatted differently, right? Like it's always in the smaller, like smaller margins. And so when I would see that, I would open it and I would be like, how many pages is this poem? And then just skip it. You know what? I'm sure some like Tolkien diehards are going to hear this and come for both of us. Um, you know what? I, I say you know it's what? so hard. It, poetry was meant to be sung. Yes. If they would sing it to and I liked it in the movies because they were singing it. And But no, who's really going to come after us is like poetry enthusiasts. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's like Angela with the from the office. I hate jazz. Just play the right notes. Like, just <laughs> tell me in a sentence. No, I agree. That's, yeah, this is my, that's also my general feeling of poetry. Just write a sentence. Anyway, so he works through all of this by writing many fragmented phrases. <laughs> and then he curls up with Master Abraham and he takes a spot in the sun and is looking through the window. And he sees young Hinsman courting Musius's widow, who had been present at the funeral. And I think at this section, 
it's not that Murr is necessarily jealous about the kind of what's happening with the widow specifically, but he has this moment of like, why have I not gone out into the world? Hinsman is seeing this widow, like the connections are happening out on the street. Like people are getting to know each other. People are, our cats are getting to meet, et cetera. And here I am having spent so much of my life up here studying and up here learning, which has been great. What would it be like if I stepped out into the world? And so he decides he decides to do that. Murr steps out onto the roof for the first time in a while. He's been avoiding the, he's been avoiding the roof because he doesn't want to run into Kitty and he doesn't want to run into Mina, obviously. When he goes up, he sees Hinsman, who's the cat from the oration, who's there with um, Musius's widow. Now, Musius had actually also been with Kitty. We learned this at Musius's funeral and Murr says it's a credit to Musius that he didn't mention that to me. But then Musius also has a widow and three of the, basically three of the kittens that were at Musius's funeral, putting the parsley on his grave and things like that. Those were Musius's children through this widow. But Mina was, even though Kitty was with Musius, her daughter Mina was actually Murr's. We've talked before on this podcast about how the cats all have very uncomplicated Mm -hmm. um approach to society to like social life and relationships he sees Musius's widow and he's a little jealous I think because I think he's just jealous that someone's living a life I'm jealous that people are out there or that cats are out there having fun not necessarily I specifically want this widow if that makes sense yes I I think you're I think you're he feels jealousy but it's not necessarily that jealousy because he wants to be with Musius's widow I don't think yes. that's it. I do think he thinks that Hinsman is an unworthy cat to be with yes. Musius's yes. widow. I think yes. that's part of it. And I think the other thing is that Musius's widow like gives him a strange look. What if someone has been, what if Hinsman has been saying stuff about Murr to her? True. You're not in control. You're, when That moment when you realize you're not in control of your own reputation, it's like very yeah. devastating. When someone gives you a strange look, you're, you're like, like I didn't, I don't know what I I've done. I don't think I did anything. <laughs> they're all in such a close they're all in such a close-knit community yeah and they everyone's they it's just like it's impossible like your reputation always must precede you maybe Hinsman is competing with Murr since they are both like famed because yeah. he's this orator as well and obviously Murr has many thoughts about that so I'm assuming it goes both ways with Hinsman having many thoughts about Murr and I'm sure he's notorious Murr yeah. for his kind of scholarly pursuits after this whole incident Murray decides that he is never going to set foot outside. So he's, he decides he's never going to set foot on the roof anymore. Yes. So that's end of an era. No more <laughs> roof. Uh, there's this very alarming line in the poem where he's, I can hear Musius crying out. He's in the <laughs> cellar. He's buried there. Oh my God. <laughs> so it does seem like it's time to say goodbye to some of the old places like the yes. attic and the roof and the cellar. A new um, book, a new season of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you said, like he's spending a lot of time with Master Abraham now. But then some things remain constant. So he still he still enjoys hanging out with Master Abraham and reading books with him. And the other thing is he has another little encounter with Ponto. So he steps outside and first he runs into Scaramouche, who is I don't know if I had realized until this point that Scaramouche was Ponto's uncle. Maybe I had just forgotten that. But he runs into Scaramouche and Scaramouche starts to warn him about 
connecting with Ponto and talks about how Ponto is a devil of a fellow and he's got, he's disgraceful. And he says, Murr, don't worry about you. You are like a good, you're a good cat, a good, you're a good I, one, except for this. just such a douche. I, can't, I know. He straight <laughs> up just was like, he said don't all this like do- condescending stuff about cats. And then he's basically, oh, I have no quarrel with the good ones. Yes. The good. He sounds yeah. like, yeah, it was just, just like you. racism 101. <laughs> not you're different or whatever yeah (laughs) um and yeah so he he gives he talks a lot of shit frankly about 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 ponto and warns 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 more off of engaging with him and then he you know goes about his way and ponto kind of shows up and is like hello is he gone is he here and so mer mer at first is oh my gosh i was just with scaramouche blah 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 and then ponto doesn't seem to be too bothered by scaramouche's like weird hatred of him or anything like that and, he, and then he starts to update Murr on what's been happening in his life recently which is first I think <laughs> that Scaramouche I, I think the the tension between Scaramouche and Ponto started when Ponto or when Scaramouche helped Ponto out of a tight spot <laughs> yeah. so Scaramouche basically had to cover for some debts that Ponto had from whatever and from what I understand Ponto had been working with he'd been running with this sausage seller who allowed illegal gambling at his shop there's a line where he says he would advance like the advance payment for whatever the gambling was sausage meat. Like it was like, <laughs> <laughs> so. sausage is both the currency yes. and the exchange <laughs> rate and exactly. also the like the commodity. It's just everything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm it's unclear what they were gambling about, but they were using sausage as part of the payment. Yeah, it uh, says just... he debts of honor. I ran up with a sausage seller who allowed illicit gambling at his shop. And would often advance considerable quantities of saveloys, groats, and liver to the gamblers, made into sausages, of course. So it sounds like Ponto just got into some trouble here. Is there I'm not of, sure. Is there a lot of speculation on on meats. Yeah, I guess so. I don't even meat know what speculation. A, what a saveloy is, quite frankly, or a groat. A um, groat, yeah. Sounds not very appetizing. I have a lot of questions about the gambling. Hang on. How do you advance gamblers' quantities of the thing that they're gambling? Don't you take the sausages from... What are they gambling? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's many options. He gave the gamblers, whoever they are, advance, basically gave them sausage on credit. Yes. But then he... Maybe he was one of the gamblers... Right? Yes, Maybe that's he, what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. He was so Ponto is one of the gamblers who got advances on sausages and, and then he paid it off. Yes. From his own collection of ownerless meat. I'm not really sure how Scaramouche would pay this off. If he had to pay in kind with sausage or if there was something else. Ponto does not seem to be too put out by Scaramouche's anger towards him. That being said, I do feel like I'm like between the gambling, the illicit sausage gambling, kind of what Ponto updates Murr on next. And Ponto is a little bit of a scoundrel, quite honestly. He is. He really, like, Scaramouche, you know, has a point. This is not a a book, like a section where the dogs come off looking good. This entire part four. Yeah, particularly, yeah, Scaramouche looks terrible. So after telling... Ponto, or after telling Murr about what, why Scaramouche was so mad at him, Ponto reveals a pretty significant update to his life that has happened since he last, last 
Sommer, which is that he has a new human patron. He's left the Professor Lothario, the professor of aesthetics, and he's gone to live with a baron whom I have many questions about, which will be real. Is he a baron, not a baron? Or I I think he might be a baron, not a baron. Um, I think he might be too. Okay, we'll get to that. Yeah. So do you want to talk about first before we get to it? He doesn't just live off of landed property. No, I don't. Somehow (laughs) even he's working for his money. He's working for his money for sure. So before we get to the Baron, do you want to tell us? So how does Ponto get kicked out? Ponto tells us that he doesn't really leave Lothario. He more gets kicked out. Mm -hmm. Basically, Lothario, as we know, is a professor of aesthetics. He has some kind of in-house lecture hall because it says that (laughs) he'll be giving lectures and Ponto tells us that every now and then a young man would surely, you know, probably got lost looking for the lecture hall and would instead go into Lothario's wife's bedroom. And it's obvious that these men are having affairs with Lothario's wife, but obviously Ponto telling it from a dog's perspective never actually says that, but obviously it's clear that's what's happening. Lothario being called Lothario and then having this plot line with his wife is, of course, deeply ironic. But it turns out Ponto also has a... He has a role in unintentionally uncovering the fact of Lothario's wife's... You think it was unintentional? I thought it was intentional. Really? So the moment that Lothario learns about his wife's infidelity is because Ponto brings him a glove that belongs to somebody that's not a man that's not in the house. And I think that Ponto did it on purpose because Ponto has shown himself to be very intentional about the things he gets up until this point with the reveal of Murr's manuscripts remember we didn't get that through Ponto's through Ponto's eyes true and yeah. so we there was that open question of did he do it on purpose and so I yeah, think he did I yes. yes and we decided that in that case it sounded like it was on purpose Abs- yes okay you've convinced and, me yeah and and he has this kind of by the time he reveals that he shows the wife's infidelity through the glove he's gone through this kind of tirade about how much he didn't like the wife Ponto says that she she would that she would lo- request loans from the domestic staff whenever her whenever the expenses exceeded the budget. So going to people are doing a lot of stuff on credit, definitely in this part with Ponto and this wife. And she, yeah, you know, she's like taking loans from the household staff, and then in exchange, she lets them wear clothes, <laughs> like fancy clothes that she's only worn once or twice and gotten sick of. So there's some, there's definitely some like fashion speculation market going on here too (laughs) and yes so they have this like complicated relationship then he suddenly ponto shows up with the professor and brings the professor this glove wagging his tail prancing up on his hind legs and he kind of he says he daintily presents it to him and i'm just like he definitely did it i think he definitely did it on purpose so he presents it to him on purpose of course (laughs) the professor is angry and the professor's wife is i can't have this conversation and just like faints or something she says she was just preparing to fall down in a faint when the chambermaid (laughs) came in she's not saved by the bell i love that though And so, yeah, and then the professor is like originally, so this is the other reason why I thought that Ponto did it on purpose because the professor is thanking him. He's saying, you are my faithful friend. Thank you for doing this. And then the wife who didn't faint at that point is falls into convulsions or something like that. And then the, the professor goes to attend to her. And then after several days of her, in theory, making up some illness or something like that at that point I feel like she was probably faking it I don't know then the professor and the wife are like back together but then that's when the real betrayal begins Ponto thinks that the wife 
got her revenge on him by basically like framing him for all these messes and Mm -hmm. meat thefts and all kinds of stuff. Ponto is a bit of a Philistine dog. So he Mm -hmm. eats very neatly. He licks around the dish very neatly. But a few nights in a row, the bowl that's presented before him just breaks very easily. He thinks that the bowls that are presented to him, the food that's presented to him is put in these bowls that are already like half broken. And so they break much more easily. causing this big mess and framing him for this mess and getting him in trouble with Lothario. And then at the last moment, the professor's wife beckons Ponto, offers to give him meat, and he's very excited. Then when he takes the meat from her, she screams like he bit her, and he says, I did not intend to, I didn't mean to, maybe I was overexcited. But regardless, the professor's wife makes a huge big thing about the fact that Ponto bit her. There's a little bit of blood that Ponto says, I maybe accidentally nipped her, I didn't mean to. But regardless, the professor is so angry at this. He starts beating and kicking Ponto, which is really sad. And he kicks him out of the house at that point. And then when he goes out, when Ponto's out of the house, he catches sight of the Baron, who is the person that the professor's wife was having this affair with. And he decides that he's going to get back at the professor by offering up his services to the Baron. Um, And the Baron at first is, I don't know if I need this dog. He doesn't look, he's not like attractive enough or handsome. (laughs) Just ridiculous. I guess Mondo is a poodle, but. (laughs) Shots fired. Okay. Fans, poodle fans, we're coming for all of you. (laughs) He goes and he offers him his, his services to this Baron. And he becomes this kind of go between the Baron and Professor Lothario's wife, as well as I think a number of other women with whom the Baron is having affairs. And so it's unclear to me at this point, we mentioned he was potentially a Baron, not a Baron. So why do you think that Baron, Mr. Baron, sir, works for his living? So Bondo talks to Mer about what their routine is and they sleep in late. They sleep in until 11 and then they wake up and drink coffee or chocolate. And Ponto apparently drinks coffee, which yes, I thought was they really weird. <laughs> they enjoy a beefsteak. They look at the latest journals and newspapers. After they've done their catching up on the day's news, they go spend the next several hours calling on ladies of higher rank, which is confusing to me. <laughs> A, a series of ladies of a series rank. of ladies named a b and c <laughs> countess a, a baroness b lady c the ambassador and wife. so forth yes there are many ladies that he calls upon between potentially the hours of 12 and 3 30 and ponto says that's the uh, baron's real business of the day after which, which is- they can settle down and have three more meals at restaurants Exactly. I did not notice this. I have to say, I was just like, oh, he calls on people. I think people used to do that back in the day. But I was like, there's very little work happening here. But once again, yeah, I think I'm convinced. Later on, Ponto actually sees the Baron and goes to meet up with him after he's spoken to Murr for a bit. And Murr at that point notices that the Baron also has very flashy in-style clothes that are eccentric and I think again flashy in that way that makes you think that he's a person designed to be seen I love Murr's reaction to this whole thing which is just another thing the way the Baron walked with a strange strutting goose step chest thrust yes and he belly pulled he carries a cane too which I feel like is another (laughs) they say at that point he's got it carrying a small thin cane so once again he sees Ponto with with the Baron the Baron holds out his cane and Ponto does these little jumping tricks for him. 
And Mara's, oh, I can't believe Ponto is degrading himself like this, doing these tricks. Yes. Once again, like from earlier in the book, he's like, I can't believe you do these tricks. But at the same time, he's like, oh, but you look really good though. Something's working. So yeah, Ponto looks the best he's looked his whole life. So at the end of the day, it seems like Ponto has a pretty good routine with this Baron. We learn about, like we said, the Baron and Ponto, they wake up, they have their coffee, they read the news, they go to a restaurant, they do their real business of the day. And the only time of day that he's not with that Ponto is not with the Baron is in the evening. The Baron is a great lover of the theater. That's the only place where Ponto is not allowed into the theater. And so instead he tells us that he goes to, he, he goes elsewhere to hang out with some other distinguished uh, greyhounds and poodles and other kinds of dogs. So Ponto takes Murr with him to this meeting of the dogs, which takes place at this home of a dog named Bedeen. And it seems almost like it's like a salon of sorts where they're talking about different questions and then like discussing literary works or something like that. So there's a, obviously there's this transition from the carefree days of the cat fraternity Mm-hmm. So maybe this is an attempt at a more mature kind of social gathering. Although, as we learn at the very end, this is true maturity lies in realizing that he does not want to go to parties or dinner parties. <laughs> so you and I, Haley, have I am reached, also in our reached true maturity. <laughs> We've reached our months of greater maturity for sure. <laughs> <laughs> man. So yeah, so Mer's at this dinner party and initially realizing that dinner parties suck. Nobody's that interested in him. He goes off into a corner because nobody cares what I have to say. They're all just like talking to each other because they know each other and I'm the stranger here. So he goes off into a corner and kind of wishes that he were anywhere else. And then he is interrupted by this beautiful greyhound named Minona, who has read his poems, which I had many questions about. I was wondering how Monona had read Murr's works, particularly because he would not share them with us, his autobiography readers. She, he notes that she's able to recite his poets by, poems by heart, and even that she is able to understand their deepest meaning. And Murr is, of course, swept away by this greyhound just because she loves him so much. I would say this was one of the only false notes in the entire book yeah. for me. Like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really understand why he was so into her. So she's into him. Was that it? I just, I felt yeah. like it was a, it was a false note in just it happened it really like suddenly. Something- I wasn't expecting it at this point in the story. Well, it's also, I think I was not expecting it at this point in the story because his section ends almost right after this. We don't learn really anything about her other than that she likes him. And even with like Kitty, and he always talks about something about them that kind of dazzled him, like Kitty's voice dazzled him. And he thinks about that really, really thoughtfully in a lot of ways. And then now it's just like this one note character that he just falls for just because she's dazzled by him which it seems like it's a younger thing like it's yeah it seems out of character for a cat maybe it is an older thing like (laughs) his months months of of greater greater maturity maturity. (laughs) all he needs is to feel like someone (laughs) flatters him with someone young and pretty is oh you're so smart (laughs) anyway Uh. it's very strange (laughs) he calls her my beloved monona etc 
but there's not really a lot of depth added to the relationship. It ends very abruptly. He goes back to see her one day and somebody pours water on him to get him and the other animals out of there. And then he gets really sick after this. And then when he finally recovers, he is cured of his fever. And then he also says that he's cured of this kind of foolish love for Monona and that he sees how silly it was to even engage with dogs in this level in the first place. And he is now attracted again to his master's home, the fireside, the kind of studies of art and science. And he notes at the very end of this section that his master had to go away. So he was going to be sent to board with his friend, the Kappelmeister, Johannes Chrysler. And we cut, that's where we leave off this section with Murr as he's preparing to go stay with Chrysler. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the sudden plot with Monona is little out of the blue. It, it felt like a false note to me because it comes so close to the end. And same with the brief illness, actually, because yes. he has this brief illness and this is shortly before we, we learn at the, in kind of the very end of the book, as we've talked before, that Mar, we learned from the editor that Mar passed away shortly after he finished composing part two. Right. Presumably while he's with Chrysler. So again, it's just, it's a little, it was a little uh, confusing for me to see this reference to a brief illness that was not the illness that killed him. Obviously I was glad to see him recovered and healthy at the end of the part of the autobiography that that we have. So I think one of the important things to note about this section is that it it's the final section that we hear from Murr. And this is the only section throughout the entire book where we end, end with a total complete sentence, a full stop. Yeah, it ends with a complete sentence, but on the other hand, also the very end of it feels oddly paced in a way that feels, and it feels fragmentary. We'll talk more at the end of this episode. We'll return to the editor's postscript and we'll talk about this whole question of the fragmentariness of this book. But before that, we got to catch up with my boy, Johannes. So Chrysler is in the midst of uncovering a potentially nefarious plot Involving him and Master Abraham and Prince Hector and all of the characters at Secret Sauce. The whole um, gang. The whole gang. The whole, they're all embroiled in this very complicated soap opera, <laughs> I think. Yes. Yeah, so we left Chrysler in part three. He had gone to the monastery. He was hanging out with Father Hilarius on, on hillsides, eating partridge. At first, the Father Abbot at the monastery really encourages Chrysler to join the monastery and and basically serve as an in-house music director similar to his Kaplanmeister role. But then this new monk arrives in the scene, this new abbot, Cyprian, who we learn in this part is actually, he's going to change the way things are done at this monastery. He's going to make things a lot stricter. He's going to ban all music. It's going to be terrible. But it also <laughs> turns out that Father Cyprian, and this is what we learn in part four, it turns out that Father Cyprian, before he became a monk, he lived in Naples and he is actually a secretly the brother of, of Prince Hector, who of course did not become a monk. He's hiding in the bushes at Seagard. <laughs> <laughs> he has become a prince, not a prince, and that has led him to the bushes of Sigardsoff, where he is <laughs> creeping on just every single woman he can possibly find. Like, <laughs> any woman within the boundaries of the park. Hector is creeping on. <laughs> so the two brothers have taken, they've taken uh, different paths in life, yes. for sure. And Chrysler, 
the mystery of part three is that Chrysler is at the Abbey and he's helping, I believe he's helping the Father Abbot put up some new artwork on the walls of the monastery. And he notices that the portrait that they're putting up seems to depict Brother Cyprian dying and being revived through a miracle. But it also depicts the murderer who would have killed Brother Cyprian, War Brother Cyprian, not saved by this miracle. And Chrysler yes. looks at this portrait, looks at this painting, and he realizes that the murderer depicted in this painting is actually Hector. But moreover, he realizes that painting of Prince Hector also matches the subject of a tiny little portrait that <laughs> Chrysler carries around with him. And we talked in episode seven about um how much we would love to commission tiny oil, oil portraits um, of, of ourselves, our nemeses, our nemeses and just hand yes. them out to people. <laughs> so it turns out that this little portrait of this little portrait that Chrysler carries around with him was given to him by Master Abraham. And it is a tiny portrait of Prince Hector. And Master Abraham gave it to Chrysler in order to warn Chrysler to stay away from Hector. So did he not recognize him in the small portrait originally he no, didn't he realize recognized this. him I'm, okay. my understanding is that it worked as planned master abraham gave him this tiny portrait and was like, fucking mm-hmm. hate this guy if you ever see him but he had <laughs> seen him already he knew no, but, he, but, but that's yeah. why i think he was priming chrysler to be suspicious of prince hector when oh, he met because it was before okay which it okay. worked okay yeah which okay. it worked because it. when okay. when he met hector he was immediately if you remember like immediately gotcha. antagonistic to him yes and it was i okay. think because he recognized because of this portrait pic. okay i'm just yes. imagining chrysler by the way with a rolodex of portraits that master abraham <laughs> has given like, him like all this? my enemies <laughs> like look out for all these people so every time he meets someone new he has to like hold up the rolodex and well that's why i'm like <laughs> how is he then it's weird to me that he sees hector in the oil painting and then is wait let me go to the portrait to it's just i think again it could have all that, been solved I with think, just a letter <laughs> well but the letter wouldn't have it wouldn't have had a likeness of hector i know that's I the problem so. I think what, so what happened in, I feel much more confident about this now than I did when we were talking before the call. I think what's happening in part three is that he looks at the painting that shows Mm -hmm. Cyprian getting stabbed, right? Yes. And he's, wait, that can't be. Is that murder? Could it be Prince Hector? And so he pulls out his Rolodex of tiny portraits of nemeses. And he's, oh my gosh, it's the same guy. I also am like, okay, but this means that Master Abraham must have worked with the same artist (laughs) for both the oil painting and the small miniature portrait, because what if the artists depict them slightly differently? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. If they were either, they were both commissioned by Master Abraham, in which case, like maybe he had them commissioned by the same painter, or maybe they were not both commissioned by Master Abraham, in which case, yeah, you do wonder if the two painters, if they were by different painters, for instance, how alike were the likenesses? Yes. And the third thing is that we learn in part four that Master Abraham is buddy with the Father Abbot. Yes. And so the fact that the Father <sighs> Abbot is conveniently putting this portrait up, or is conveniently putting this painting, painting up, up at the very moment when Cyprian appears, which I think is kind of a douchey move, Welcome. by the Here's, way. Rem- remember yeah, when you were stabbed by your brother? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? Yeah, that was strange. So yeah, there's something... Either I understand why, heck, why I understand why Chrysler in that moment when he saw 
the painting was like yeah. I, I just let me just double check if it's the same guy from the tiny portrait we didn't get the same thing when we first met Hector right yes. we didn't yeah. see he- Chrysler like going through his portraits just yes. seeing, <laughs> like do I this recognize guy? this man <laughs> yeah and maybe to be fair the Chrysler sections are cut in fragmented so perhaps in another section <laughs> there in a, <laughs> I one of the sections my <laughs> yes he, he recounts his rolodex um i still maintain that it's very it would be very heavy to carry around a rolodex of miniature paintings of all of your friends nemeses <laughs> um, it's like a lot <laughs> a lot to carry with you <laughs> <laughs> and but the paintings are very confusing to me they get the job done in in this yeah in this part for sure so he realizes and they are that, delightful yeah in real he life. realizes yeah. that he realizes that Hector is again not not just annoying or a thorn in his side but also involved in this murder yes and then he confronts Cyprian about the whole thing yes which I thought was why does he have beef with Cyprian? I think Chrysler is on edge when he confronts Cyprian because there is that the funeral of the person that Chrysler had killed at Seagartsoff. So he's feeling a lot of guilt about that. And I think this entire time, he's just confused about why he's there. If we remember back in part three, he thought that potentially Madame Benzon had orchestrated him being there. He doesn't really understand the politics of what's going on. There's a lot of lies and it's all just seems very confusing. And again, perhaps... <laughs> Chrysler would have felt better if Abraham had just written him a letter to explain what was happening. Uh, But Chrysler, regardless, that didn't happen. And so Chrysler is just so confused about what's going on. And he basically, he confronts Cyprian about what's happening. And Cyprian tells the whole story of what isn't, what's depicted in the painting, how he's related to Hector, how he's in this kind of whole web of interpersonal relationships. So Cyprian, like Hector is- Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say Cyprian, like Hector, is from Italy, and he, when he was in Italy, had fallen in love with Angela, who is the daughter of Madame Benzon. Woof, woof, woof. Oh, the dog salon is a very intellectual experience. We have serious conversations about local squirrel coming and goings, recapping the latest ball games, and discussing our recent scholarly pursuits. Woof. What about you? Do you ever go to the cat salon? Wow. I prefer a salon experience at home. I lick my butt and then I make a face. For intellectual pursuits though, I'm more of an autodidact. (coughs) Cyprian has fallen in love with Angela and they start this relationship. But then eventually he tells, uh, Cyprian tells Hector, his brother, about this relationship and Hector also falls in love with Angela and mm-hmm. somehow things escalate yes. and result in <laughs> and I up think to this point I was like okay it happens and then yeah. the next thing was like and so Hector showed up and stabbed him and then we learned that or the way Cyprian tells the story he says that you stabbed me I was saved by a miracle but Hector then intends to assault Angela and force her to marry him and Mm -hmm. the way Cyprian tells the story Cyprian says that Angela dies from poison rather than be subjected um, to to marriage with marriage against her will with this man so this you know would-be death of Cyprian and Angela's death both happen on the same day so this is how we unceremoniously learn that 
Angela, who again is is uh, Madame Benzon's daughter, we learned that she has died. Uh, and yeah. if you remember, Madame Benzon talks about how she doesn't know where she is, hasn't been able to find her. And so we learned pretty unceremoniously that this young woman has passed away. Yeah. And it's also sad because aside from the fact that Angela has died so tragically and in such a really sad way. But then Chrysler subsequently has a conversation with the father Abbott. And the father Abbott basically says, yeah, you got the gist of it. That's most of what happened. But what Cyprian didn't tell you is that actually he was the one that poisoned Angela, Mm -hmm. or at least he gave her access to it. Or it seems like Father Cyprian had more of a role to play in the death of Angela. Surely Hector is also responsible for it. But that's the part that Cyprian strategically strategically withheld. And the father Abbott explains to Chrysler that the this little tiny portrait that he has is actually it's a double portrait it's a little Mm -hmm. if you look behind the portrait of Hector there's actually a portrait of Angela and he says that if he looks behind that portrait he'll see some documents which he says provides evidence of this double murder yes so let's talk a little bit about what happens with Hector at the court of Prince Irenaeus with Master Abraham so At the end of part three, we've left off with Prince Hector just like creeping in the bushes and then coming to visit Hedwiga and Julia and just being quite the creep. And then some of the huntsmen in the park realize that there's somebody creeping into the castle and creeping into the court and they tell Prince Irenaeus about this. And Prince Irenaeus summons his people. I don't know what they would be called since he's not actually a prince, but he summons a number of huntsmen and puts together this party with the idea of going to find this person who has been hiding out and creeping on the castle. But then it's revealed that it's actually not a mysterious person at all. It's Prince Hector. Hector Um, all along. It was (laughs) Hector all along. (laughs) So Madame Benzon, I believe, is the one who says that Hector is there. And Irenaeus is so excited. He's like, oh, great. This is perfect. Irenaeus is here. Or um, sorry, Irenaeus is like, this is great. This is perfect. Hector is here. We can proceed with this wedding between Hector and my daughter Hedwig, which I have many questions about because of course, yeah, Hector of course well, has no such designs. Hector, Hector wants that to Hector. that Hector. <laughs> Hector the Huckster yes. wants to. <sighs> I, I I I wish I could say it was as simple as he wants to marry Julia. It seems no, like his ultimate goal in life is to just creep on people, so he will creep on Julia. Yes, he's just really creepy. And I think at this point, Madam, more people are recognizing that he's creepy. People are talking about this, finally. Yes, <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the person who matters, which is who is Prince Aranese, he doesn't know. He doesn't yet. He, yeah, he doesn't know. He probably doesn't care, honestly. He, upon realizing it's Prince Hector, basically calls off the search party and then they have a... They turn, they turn the search, <laughs> the, they turn the like battle in hunting party yeah it's like a little welcome reception for prince hector yes exactly then master abraham appears at this welcome party and hector is shocked we get the reveal that they've known each other obviously with the events that happened in naples we learn more about those then in the subsequent section um master abraham initially presented severino as his teacher but of course yes now we realize that he's just like, oh yeah, I, I went by the name Severino. Yes. Implying I was that, my own teacher. Yeah, <laughs> I'm self-taught. Yes. Oh yeah. So he's Severino and he knows about this whole incident that went down 
<laughs> the incident, the time yes. that Hector stabbed <laughs> time his brother. <laughs> yes. So he knows about that. And he basically tells Hector, I've warned Chrysler about you. And I've you know, yes. given him the old tiny portrait. <laughs> <laughs> and so Julia obviously is concerned about who Hector is as well, because he's been creeping on her. So Julia and Master Abraham go down to the Cottage of Horrors. She is asking him questions about who Severino is since she has heard Hector and Master Abraham throwing around the the name Severino in their meeting. Master Abraham starts behaving really strangely, talking to... Even more evasive than usual. Yes. Yes. He's like even more evasive than usual. He should have Uh, have prepared to faint at this moment. Truly. (laughs) Uncomfortable conversation. We leave off with Master Abraham preparing to tell Julia all that Madame Benzon has been plotting. And we don't learn exactly what he says to her. It cuts off there. So I think the significance of this conversation between Madam Master Abraham and Julia is that the very last thing that we read in the Chrysler section period is this letter from Master Abraham to Chrysler. And Chrysler opens this like at the monastery and this is the last thing we, we see in that section. Master Abraham is basically, I have a plan. You need to leave the monastery and come back to seek herself immediately. Things are happening here. Madame Benzon is now a countess. We have no idea how this happens. She's somehow in a position to like control Prince Irenaeus' fate now. So the, how the tables, how the turntables, like Madame Benzon is, oh, she could, it, the letter's like, oh, Madame Benzon could like really change Prince Irenaeus's fate and give him some land or something. Um, so something's changed there. Julia is now to be wedded to Prince Ignatius, who is Hedwiga's brother. No mention of Hedwiga. Presumably Prince Irenaeus wants to move ahead with his plans of marrying her to Hector. And Master Abraham's like, obviously Master Abraham, Master Abraham thinks that if any of this came to pass, it would be a disaster, either of these marriages. And so he's like, I have a plan. You have to come back immediately. And as we've discussed in episode two, this, the whole, the Chrysler narrative as a whole is circular. So Mm -hmm. this very last thing in the Chrysler section actually brings us right back to the very first Chrysler section in part one. And so this is actually the, this letter where Master Abraham is, you got to come, you have to make, come back to see, uh, see Kartsov and you have to come to Prince Hedwig's birthday celebrations because that's where all this stuff is going to go down. And then the very first section of part one is where we pick up after the birthday celebrations and Master Abraham is like, Chrysler, what the hell? Like you didn't come. I couldn't execute my plan. And presumably mm-hmm. in part three, we get the actual fallout from that and we get the whole resolution of what came to does this marriage come to pass after the birthday celebration or is master abraham and chrysler are they able to do something about it does chrysler just check out and leave that's the impression i got when chrysler first appeared in in part one and sees murr he doesn't seem in like a big rush to go stop the marriages and find his true love so it's no that's where we it's it is unresolved it's like we get more set up for part three or for book three, but it doesn't. And we, it's pretty clear that it's an intentional stopping point because it's such a clean circle back to the beginning, but there's still a lot unresolved about what exactly. This is not when Murr is born, right? Murr is born before this. 
Mur is, this when Mur is born. Mur is Master Abraham adopts Mur the night after the name, like the night of the Hedwiga celebration. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. And so it is like right around his birth then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a kitten at this point. And then Chrysler yeah. visits Master Abraham shortly, like a few, I think after that, like when Mur has is a little mm-hmm. bit older. And so when Chrysler shows up, Master Abraham's like, hey, what happened? You missed the name day celebrations. Yeah. By the way, that's when I got this cat. And then we don't know what is going to happen. Yeah, so there's a couple interesting things about that. In some ways, it's beautiful that we like end the section back with Murr's birth. Like in in the chronological time of his narrative, he's dead. He dies. And then we learn in the postscript, he dies. But then the yeah. actual book itself yes. ends back where he's born. Which yeah, is I hadn't really nice. Yeah. That is really yeah. nice. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, I, yeah, I just it noticed like it now. Yeah. It's also interesting because everything that's happened with Chrysler up until that point, basically the entire contents of the Chrysler sections in these books don't overlap in time with Murr at all. Except so, for that very... Yeah. This goes back to the, the discussion that you and I have been having for a while about to what extent does this you know, just about the fragmentary nature of both the narratives, whether, which elements of this fragmentariness are intentional, which ones are just kind of, are, are out of Hoffman's hands. Mm-hmm. So just to recap part of book three, the editor's postscript is a fascinating <laughs> little thing <laughs> here because the edit, the editor's postscript tells us that there's supposed to be a book three out by Easter the next year. This one comes out in Christmas of 1822, I think. It's supposed to be out by Easter, but then we learn from biographical um, information about Hoffman that he never actually gets around to being able to write that book three. He's in the midst of some issues with the censor over Master Flea, which is another book that he'd written around you know near the end of his life. And then, so he's in the midst of those censor issues and then also he Hoffman himself passes away just a few months after book two of Murr comes out but the editor's preface also tells us that Murr died short late November 1822 so about a month before book two was published but the editor's preface tells us that the fictional Murr also you know, yeah, died after having composed this book too. So I think that, I think where I land is that Hoffman intended to write a book three. I think that he intended to write the continuation of Chrysler's story. I do think that he might've finished Murr's story here. And I don't think he originally intended when writing this book to finish Murr's story, but I think that perhaps when real life Murr died, he decided to end Murr's story here. Do you and think, what do you make of the editor's statement that he'll publish some of Murr's other writings papers. on, on yeah. additional papers? I think it could be a couple of things. One is that in the structure of this book, while the Murr sections are cut off, they do pick up where they left off. So we do have a complete text for Murr here, although it's fragmentary because of how it's put together. So I wonder if potentially his additional papers would have not necessarily been an autobiography, but it could have been part of his 
prolific series of works. He had several essays that he had published during his lifetime. He obviously had poetry as well. He could have had, I guess what I think is that it might've been papers of MERS that weren't specifically related to his autobiography. And perhaps the format would have been a bit different if, well, if MERS was I included mean, in this From Hoffman's book. perspective, let's assume Hoffman didn't die in 1822. Do you think he would have felt like continuing the autobiography of this cat would have felt wrong or he wasn't able to do it once Murr died in real life, but it would have felt different to publish other writings in his name. I think a couple things have solidified for me that I do think that this was the completion of Murr's autobiography and whatever happened next would have happened differently. First, it's possible that E.T.A. Hoffman planned on continuing Murr's autobiography, but when real life Murr died, he decided to complete the autobiography in this draft. And that's part of why the section with Monona feels so rushed and quick. And at the end, we kind of catapults towards the end of Murr's life very quickly without a lot of narrative payoff, which clearly Hoffman is very capable of writing. We Catapult have a lot towards of- the end of, not towards the end of Murr's life though, because again, it doesn't end with, it ends with those, with a transitional moment. Yes, but then he, but there's, it doesn't seem like there's much after that transition. Like he goes to Chrysler and dies pretty quickly after that, even in do the we, story. Do we know that? That's I what we don't that's know. What the no, editor no, says, no, yeah. We don't know that. No, because okay. he, we don't know that because it, it's possible that part three or sorry, that book three yeah. would have, you know, had 200 pages of his life with Chrysler for all we know. Yeah. I guess my question is how much, once Mara passed away in real life, how much did Hoffman then reshape the manuscript as a whole, yeah. as well as the very last Murr section? Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at the postscript because he said he died between the 29th and 30th of November after a short but severe illness. I just I guess I got the a feeling that it was it was soon because they say the editor says that the death of Musius was a harbinger harbinger of his own death, and that means I got the, the that's. that's- week and it could have been months after yeah that, though. yeah I got the, I always got the the impression so my interpretation of it was that it was happening soon after he left with Chrysler and perhaps it's an incorrect in, uh, interpretation I, but I don't I, do I don't think, see I don't see any yeah. clear proof either way I guess yeah just based that, on yeah yeah so regardless I think that I do think he intended to complete it here because of two things I think because of the fact that the Mercer section does end with a complete sentence. I think that whether but the he next could have, one, but was... he could have done that. He could I know, have done that then... after yeah. after Mur died in real life, right? Yes, that's what I mean. I think because Mur died in real life, this book intended to end Mur's autobiography, and perhaps a book three would have included posthumous papers, etc. Yeah. I think there's potentially a different original plan had real life Mur not yes. died. I also do think that what we just spoke about how this book is cyclically ending with Murr's death, but also with Murr's birth because it's ending at the part where Chrysler is now Chrysler and Master Abraham are about to, or Master Abraham is about to meet and adopt Murr chronologically where we end up. Creates a a nice circle for me in a way that I think is, yeah, a complete story in some ways. I do think that I still wonder if Hoffman hadn't died, what would have prevented him from continuing the autobiography 
and continuing on with the part where Murr is now living with Chrysler. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things that we've talked about a lot, not only is Murr, the 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 sections about Murr are fictionalized autobiography of his beloved cat, but also the sections about Chrysler are actually lightly autobiographical versions of Hoffman's own life. And so how lovely it would have been if we could have actually seen the realization of that because we see essentially Hoffman and Murr's lives, Hoffman as Chrysler, we see their lives mm-hmm. unfolding kind of side by side in this book and then I, I just think how nice it would have been to see to see them actually like they're finally united it's kind of like if pebbles and we have our separate lives unfolding and then it ends culminates very nicely like you're saying in this moment when we finally meet in Cincinnati yeah. and then it's our life together yeah. and I guess it, it is I understand what you're saying about like the death of Murr changed his plans I'm not totally certain that I, I think it would have still been a lovely tribute to oh, yeah. continue that like to basically continue writing continue writing the part that honestly is most explicitly autobiographical which is he would have been cut the four years of Murr's life with him that would have been the part that's most analogous to Murr living with Chrysler yes um, yeah. so it's not I guess it's not automatically apparent to me what about Murr's death in real life means that continuation of the autobiography is off off limits obviously in real life like Hoffman dying made it really off limits yes but creatively I'm not I wasn't apparent to me why it had to be off limits why it had to then why the editor says oh so now we will continue with this yeah with kind of the unpublished papers part of it I think is that the editor is like the editor is saying because it's to uphold the fiction of Murr writing his autobiography Murr can't write his autobiography after he's dead yeah and so that's why it has to end there. So I, I really do think it's, that's why the editor's postscript has to, the editor's postscript, which people often read as like just a report of what happened in real life. But I really think it's, remember it's Hoffman is. Yes, Hoffman. As editor. Yeah. And yes. He, yeah. And the editor is a character He's playing another too. character. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The title or the subtitle of this section, My Months of Greater Maturity, led me to believe that Murr was in a sunset period of his life anyway um, at this point of writing it, even though he was he not that old. He just outgrew dinner parties. Yeah. <laughs> am I? That's in why the I'm like, oh my God, am I? And I <laughs> That's why I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's all no, over. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think that I didn't get a sense from any of part four yeah that it was like a natural conclusion like, conclusion to his life and I think we also approached this differently right like I read the introduction before you before I read the book and you didn't right you read the book before you read the introduction so I wonder if me knowing where this ended and also knowing that Mer died colored some of my perception of what was happening because I always knew that we were moving towards Mer's death and so I wonder if I was interpreting that or inter- have interpreted some of the the pieces in this that for me showed up as clues that this was like the co- kind of completion of his story in this right. form. And for you, they didn't feel that way. Definitely. I think definitely the fact that the very last Mars section, like I said, is this like false note of this very rushed mm-hmm. love angle with Bedeen definitely made me feel like this doesn't feel like an intentional ending and it's not no. the editor's yeah. postscript is very clear that this was not an intentional ending but I, I but then I'm like but like 
how committed is Hoffman to the craft of to the to like kind of the, the fiction of Murr as yeah writer? If it were, I'm like he could he could have like given it a nicer. I know. I feel like I'm breaking the the what's the word for it when you I'm breaking the investment in the story by being like yeah yeah. But Hoffman could have written a different ending. Yeah. No, but he didn't write it. Murr wrote it. Yes, like, <laughs> he couldn't have written a different ending. He died. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah. I definitely think if Hoffman had lived, there would have been another book. I think there w- I think he, it's very yes. clear that he intended to write book three. I think yes. it's very clear. Right? There's a lot of questions about Chrysler. There's a lot of narrative of that. And I like actually, I had always thought about the main relationship of, of the main human patron relationship of Murr's life as being with Master Abraham. But I like the idea that he and Chrysler had a lot of stuff that they got up to too. And yeah, that would have been nice to read about. I'm sad that we didn't get to. Yeah. But I think the the kind of abrupt ending of Mara's last section, I think I am starting to see it as through there through this conversation, I'm starting to see it as Hoffman's unswerving commitment to mm-hmm. the authorship, like Mara's authorship of yes, his autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it seems like to me that it was probably really painful for Hoffman for his cat to die suddenly. It's very lifelike in a way that like he had these plans for his cat and his cat had these plans for himself and then he died and that's really sad and he should have had a narrative arc but like Murr is a real cat and Murr lived a real life and that life did not end with a satisfying narrative arc Um, it just ended and it was painful yeah I think you're right that Hoffman made a choice to not give it a neat buildup to him dying. We feel the same sadness and sense of incompletion that I think probably Hoffman did. Yeah. You know, we're just like, I want her. And that's probably where Hoffman was. Wow. More and more people are saying that Tomcat Murr will be the time cat of the year 2021. And it's all because of this podcast. I'm glad he's finally getting the recognition he deserves. If they let dogs vote, Murr has my vote for sure. I would like to nominate him for an honorary mention as dog's best friend. Where we'll leave off. We have one more episode in store about ETA Hoffman, the life, the man, the mystery. We hope that you've enjoyed following this cat's adventures with us so far so this is a hard book to say goodbye to Murr is a hard cat to say goodbye to it is always so hard to say goodbye to a good friend and fortunately this good friend is immortalized in a book that you can return to like we have and so I think we've each returned to this book several times throughout the the recording of this podcast and I feel very confident that I will return to it over and over again in the future